The Darklands podcast and Frida Pants Productions stands in solidarity with the Black community against racism, oppression, and police brutality. We see you. We are listening. We stand beside you. Some housekeeping before I got started with this episode. I just want to say that this is a late episode and off of the schedule that I'm trying to maintain of releasing an episode every other weekend. I think that everybody is experiencing these crazy times with their own mixture of anxiety and hope. And I took the last couple of weekends to be involved in some anti-racist work in areas that are really important to me. And then afterwards to do some self-care. And that pretty much included texting my mom, who lives in a different state, while we binged watched Queer Eye together so that I could just feel better at the end of the day. But I am committed to maintaining an every other week schedule. And so while this episode is a week late, I am back on track and will be releasing another episode next Sunday evening. Thank you all so much for your patience. The Darklands podcast explores Pacific Northwest true crime and all that it entails. You are the expert in you. If at any time you find the content distressing, please use your judgment and either skip ahead a few minutes or move on to a different episode. This weekend marks the 155th Juneteenth celebration, which commemorates when the news of the Emancipation Proclamation reached enslaved people in the Confederate state of Texas over two and a half years after slavery became illegal. In honor of Juneteenth and the current waves of protests by the Black community who are once again being forced to ask our nation to recognize their dignity and their worth, this episode will focus on the legacy of Mulugeta Serra. Sarah was an Ethiopian immigrant attending school in Portland, Oregon, when he was brutally murdered by a white supremacist in the winter of 1988. His death would force Portland to reckon with his perception of itself as a tolerant and progressive place for people of color to reside. It provides some context for the racial tensions that we still see play out in our city today, when it's still pretty common to have white nationalist groups and groups like the Proud Boys and Patriot Prayer march in our city. Mulugeta's death would result in marches and rallies against prejudice at the time that it occurred. But more importantly, it would also result in a landmark civil lawsuit against the white Aryan resistance, or war, that would bankrupt their founder and seriously curtail the operations of this neo-Nazi movement, both in Oregon and around the country. Welcome to Darklands. I am Miss Abby B, and this is Season 1, Episode 4. The Legacy of Mulugeta Serra. Mulugeta Serra came to the United States when he was 20 years old. His name was actually just Mulugeta. Serra is a patronym. It's his father's name. In this country, we don't really do one-word names. Mulugeta left a young son in Ethiopia, and he was following in his uncle's footsteps, coming to the United States to receive a formal education. He was sponsored by a family so he could be here on a student visa, and he lived with his uncle for a little while before his uncle completed a social work degree and moved to California. 
Milagueta was studying engineering and business at Portland Community College. He made friends in the Ethiopian community. The African community is the fourth largest immigrant population in Multnomah County, where Portland is the county seat. It's an incredibly diverse community that represents the enormous diaspora of African nations. Among his friends, he was known as a quiet guy with a big smile. Behind his smile, there was a tremendous amount of tragedy that he had experienced in his young life. He was very close with his mother, who died when he was 10 years old. He was a teenager when the emperor of Ethiopia was overthrown by a Marxist military faction called the Derg, and this started an incredibly violent period in Ethiopian history called the Red Terror. This was a time of civil war, and during this time the Derg would patrol the streets with guns and basically slaughter anyone they considered to be an enemy of the state. This could include women and children. Thousands of Ethiopians were killed in this period, and their bodies would literally just litter the streets. Mulugeta witnessed all of this as a teenager. He lost friends and neighbors. It was also a period when drought and famine plagued the country. So Mulugeta had lived through an incredible amount of trauma by the time he came to the States at the ripe old age of 21. While going to school in Portland, Mulugeta earned a living driving a shuttle bus at the Portland International Airport, and he would send money back home to his family who were taking care of his son. He lived in an apartment on Southeast 31st and Southeast Pine, right off of East Burnside. On the evening of Saturday, November 12, 1988, Mulugeta had attended a small party in the evening. He had to work in the morning, and his friends and fellow countrymen Tilahule Antne and Wonbosun Tesfe, my apologies for any mispronunciations, had given him a ride home. The apartment where he lived was on a narrow Portland street in an area that's very hard to find parking. They were idling in the street as Mulugeta got out of the car and was wrapping up their conversation, saying goodbye to them. That same Saturday, three young men, Kyle Brewster, 19, Stephen Strasser, 20, and Ken Meiske, 23, had been drinking heavily. Maisky was well known in the death metal scene where he had fronted several bands and went by the name Ken Death. The three men were also members of a skinhead group called East Side White Pride. They had been downtown in Pioneer Courthouse Square handing out white supremacist flyers while wearing the equivalent of their uniform, steel-toed Doc Martens, olive-colored flak jackets, and shaved heads. After that, they headed to the apartment of another skinhead named Nick Heiss. Heiss lived in an apartment right next to Mulugeta's complex. In her seminal book about the crime, called A Hundred Little Hitlers, author Eleanor Langer would say, they lived so close to each other that they could have done the thing where you make a telephone out of a tin can and two strings and put them in between the two apartments. Ken was the oldest of the three men, and he had served time in prison for burglary. It was there that he became an adherent of the Christian identity movement, a belief system that literally believes that only white people have souls. When he got out, he was looking for kindred spirits, and he found them. Steven Strasser was one of the many so-called street kids that still inhabit downtown Portland. Often these are youth that are experiencing houselessness that congregate around the Pioneer Courthouse Square. He was known to be one of the earliest recruits in the Portland skinhead movement. Kyle Brewster was the baby of the group at just 19. He had recently graduated Grant High School, where he was the homecoming king, 
And this was despite the fact that he was very open about the fact that he had struggled with hard drugs since he was just a youngster. He was still very popular, however. After graduating, he went on to work as a bike messenger, delivering blueprints for an architecture firm. And that's where he met Ken Meiske. After a long day of handing out racist literature, the three had gone to Nick Heiss's apartment, where they proceeded to drink a lot. And at about 1.30 a.m., they left Heiss's with two teenage girls. Kyle noticed Mulugeta saying goodbye to the friends that had dropped him off. By this time, it was early Sunday morning, and a low fog had rolled in. The skinheads jumped into the car with the girls and pulled up right behind Mulugeta and his friends and began yelling racial slurs and telling them to move. Again, these were super narrow streets, and they couldn't actually move past the car with the Ethiopian men in it. So they started hurling racial slurs, telling them to move, and Mulugeta's friends also exchanged words with them. And then things just exploded, and what happened next was very quick and very chaotic. Tilahule would say in interviews after the events that the men did not say a word as they got out of the car and charged Mulugeta. Ken was wielding a Louisville Slugger baseball bat. Wondwusen jumped out of the car to come to Mulugeta's aid, but was tripped by Steven Strasser. He tried to crawl underneath a parked car to protect himself while Ken was hitting him across the legs with a baseball bat and Stephen proceeded to kick him. While the skinheads may have been silent while they were beating up the other men, their teenage passengers were not. The young women were screaming out of the windows of the car, kill him, kill him, kick him. While this was happening, Tilahule drove off to get some help. Kyle Brewster was punching the much smaller Mulageta in the face. And at this time, Ken moved behind him and started smashing him on the head with his baseball bat. When he fell to the ground, Ken delivered a final blow, which, depending on what account you read, either split his skull in two or just completely smashed it against the pavement. All while this was happening, Steve and Kyle continued kicking Mulugeta with their steel-toed boots. After that, the skinheads and their female companions sped off into the night, leaving Mulugeta Sarah lying in a pool of his own blood. He would die the next day. The city woke up on the morning of Sunday, November 13, 1988, to a new reality, where the facade of what some people call Portland polite or Portland progressive or Portland passive progressive could no longer paper over the realities of seething racial tensions that were boiling under the surface. Kenji Bunch, who was in high school in southwest Portland when the murder occurred, and who would go on to commission a musical composition to honor Mulugeta, would reflect on the event nearly 30 years later by saying, quote, It's fair to say it was traumatic for the city. Denial was a large part of that sense of shock. I remember a lot of pearl clutching, how could something like this happen here when we are so enlightened and peaceful? There was this sense that this happened in a vacuum, rather than being systemic, something in place for generations. End quote. City Commissioner Chloe Udaly echoed these sentiments at a memorial commemorating the 30th anniversary of Mulugeta's death, calling his murder a rude awakening for many progressive white Portlanders. She said, His murder shocked a portion of our community. It certainly didn't shock our black neighbors, who had been living in fear of what happened to Mulugeta happening to them. 
And while this might seem kind of harsh and like so much hindsight, it is important to have context for what was going on in Portland and the entirety of the Pacific Northwest in the 80s. First, many in the Northwest did and still do view the region as a place where racial tolerance, a word that I hate, is the norm. This is an easy view to hold when the region is predominantly white and it is the voices of white progressive people with good intentions that is dominating the discourse about how good we are doing as a tolerant society. In other words, it's easy to say, we're doing a good job in a room full of people that look just like you and who are nodding in agreement. It is also the lack of diversity in the Pacific Northwest that drew a lot of individuals and groups that espoused the idea of creating a white separatist utopia comprised of parts of Idaho, Washington, and Oregon to the region. For some, it wasn't enough to create a separatist state. They also wanted to use the Pacific Northwest as a base from which to start a race war, a modern genocide in which only the superior race would be left standing. The spread of these ideologies was exactly what was occurring in Portland in the 80s. It is not hard to understand why many may have missed the growing presence of skinheads making themselves known in the downtown area in the early 80s. Portland has always had a burgeoning music scene, with venues like the Satyricon at the heart of a thriving punk culture. At first, no one really noticed the infiltration of racist skinheads. A lot of people, including the Portland Police Bureau, just assumed that the growing number of skinheads were just like any other punk rock fans. I want to be really clear that not all skinheads are racist, and I'll come back to that later when I talk more about the fallout from Mulugeta's murder, but this new influx of skinheads were, and I'll refer to them as the racist skins from here on out to keep it clear. Anyways, it was around 1985 when this group began showing up. The arrival of the racist skins and their adherents in Portland was part of a growing movement in the Pacific Northwest. Northern Idaho had the Aryan Nations, who followed Richard Butler. They had a compound outside of Hayden Lake, and at their peak they would march in the scenic city of Coeur d'Alene. In the early 1980s, a group split off from the Aryan Nations. This group was led by a man named Robert Matthews and was called The Order. The Order was a particularly violent Christian identity movement sect who were implicated in numerous robberies. They robbed banks, they robbed armored cars, and in 1984, they were implicated in the murder of a Jewish radio host named Alan Berg in Denver, Colorado. Soon after Berg's murder, the order engaged in a shootout with federal agents in a Northeast Portland motel. Two weeks after that, Robert Matthews went down in a hail of bullets after a standoff with over 75 FBI agents at his Whidbey Island home in Washington's Puget Sound. Matthews' death made him a martyr hero for white supremacists everywhere, including a man named Tom Metzger, a television repairman from Southern California who hailed Matthews as, quote, the father of the second American Revolution, end quote. Tom Metzger had been a grand dragon in the KKK, he ran and lost for seats in both the U.S. House and the U.S. Senate. Tom Metzger was an energetic man who referred to himself in the third person, and he had formed a group called the White Aryan Resistance, or WAR, in 1983. After Robert Matthews' death, Tom Metzger decided that he was going to be the one to carry on his legacy. Metzger began recruiting violent, racist skins. But he was from an old-school clan background where underneath the sheets often you would find respectable businessmen. 
So he didn't quite understand this, the younger skinheads style of dress with the docks and the flak jackets and the shaved heads, but this wasn't important to him. Their loyalty and their willingness to engage in violence was. To lead these younger recruits, Metzger enlisted his son, John Metzger, to head up what he was now calling War's Aryan Youth Movement. John Metzger found a zealous young recruit in Dave Mazzella, a 16-year-old kid who was happy to blame everything that had gone bad in his life on Jewish people and black people. Dave was a book-smart kid, but he was also no stranger to street violence in the name of white supremacy. John Metzger mentored Dave, and the youth saw Tom Metzger as a father figure. They taught him recruiting and organizing strategies and tactics. Dave was a great pupil and a rising star in the Aryan youth movement, where he was deemed to be the vice president. While this was happening, in Portland, it was becoming more difficult to mistake the racist skins as just fun-loving punk fans. In 1986, about 20 racist skins marched through Old Town Portland with baseball bats, axes, and pipes. In March of 1988, just over six months before the murder of Mulugeta, a pack of skins attacked and nearly stomped an Asian man to death in front of his wife and child. The violence by the skins was rising, but there were still leftover rifts among racist factions from when the order split off from the Aryan nations. Also, a lot of these groups were just kind of loose gangs of youth with hate in their hearts. They had no real leadership, including the East Side White Pride group to which Ken, Kyle, and Stephen belonged. In 1988, John Metzger sent his prize pupil, Dave Mazzella, who is now 19 years old, to Portland in an effort to both bring together warring factions of racist skins and also, most importantly, to organize the East Side White Pride group. Dave spent several weeks with Ken Meiske, teaching him the ways of war, which included proselytizing and handing out leaflets, as well as beating up non-white people on a regular basis. This was the fall of 88, in less than a month, after a day of spreading the gospel of hate in the way that they had been trained by war, Kevin, Kyle, and Steve would head across the Willamette River to the east side, where they would have their fateful encounter with Mulegeta Sarah. Mazella had been with them earlier during the day, but he was not with them when they committed their assault and murder. At first, it was not looking good for law enforcement in terms of solving Mulegeta's murder. His friends, Tilahuse and Wondwusen, were not only terrified, but they had no idea who the men were that had assaulted them. Fortunately, the assailants were wearing their racist costumes of steel-toed docks and olive flak jackets and shaved head, so it was a good place for the police to start looking. Within a few days, a confidential informant who was connected with the East Side White Pride provided Kyle, Ken, and Steve's names to law enforcement. The police went to Steve's apartment, where they encountered his roommate, none other than Dave Mazzella. Dave began to spill about how he was in Portland at the Metzger's bequest to bring together different racist skins factions and to organize East Side White Pride. He was 19 years old, and he told the police who came to interview him he was done. He wanted out of the racist movement. With Dave's information, the case moved quickly, and Ken, Kyle, and Steve ended up pleading guilty to varying charges for their involvement in Bulugeta's murder, each of them getting different sentences. 
Ken Death Meiske drew the longest of the sentences, receiving life in prison. He died in prison at the age of 45 from complications of hepatitis C. While incarcerated, he continued to refer to himself as a prisoner of war and as probably the oldest skinhead alive. He also maintained that his crime was not a hate crime, but rather a road rage incident that was the product of his uncontrolled anger management problem. Kyle Brewster served 20 years in prison and was released in 2002 with the condition that he not associate with any neo-Nazi groups. He violated the terms of his parole in 2008 by assaulting a police officer and becoming involved in a rising white power movement called Volksfront. He served another six years and kind of dropped off the radar for a while, but resurfaced on social media in 2018, where he used his platform to proclaim his support for Donald Trump. Steve Strasser served the shortest term of the three men and was released from prison in 1999. He dropped out of the white supremacist movement and also quietly dropped off the radar. As of 2018, his whereabouts remained unknown. The aftermath of Mulligata's murder threw the city in turmoil. This white progressive community was forced to reckon with their idealized image of themselves and the reality of how a violent racist movement was able to sometimes quietly and sometimes very loudly foment in their midst. There were rallies and marches against racism, and while all of this is great, it is an unfortunate reality that we see happen over and over again. The outrage about injustice results in a few bursts of energy to change things and then quietly dissipates before any real change occurs. And this might have been the legacy of Mulugay Tessero's murder as well, a heartfelt but brief surge of energy around racial violence that quietly faded into the backdrop as things slowly returned to the status quo. But the thing about zealots in any movement is that they can't shut up, both about things that they see as successful and especially about situations where they feel that they have been persecuted. And this was certainly true of the white power movement. Two months after Moligeta's murder, Tom Metzger, the head of war, would go on his broadcast radio show to say of Ken, Kyle, and Steve, quote, it looks like the skinheads did their civic duty, end quote. These words not only make him a garbage human being, but they also righteously pissed off Morris Dees, the lead lawyer for the Southern Poverty Law Center, or SPLC. SPLC had long been monitoring white supremacist movements across the country, and especially in the Northwest where they were burgeoning. Dees took his outrage and funneled it into a renewed scrutiny of war and Metzger. He wanted to be able to construct a case that would hold war responsible for the hatred and violence that resulted in Mulugeta's murder. He enlisted the help of Dave Mazzella, who, remember, had said that he wanted out of the neo-Nazi movement. The case that Dees was building would argue that Mazzella incited the violence that resulted in Mulugeta's death while working as an agent of war's Aryan youth movement, and that as such, war and the Metzgers were also culpable for his murder. This may seem like a stretch, but Dees was a very successful civil litigator and had already won several large cases against other hate groups. In 1989, Dees and the SPLC came into possession of a letter from Tom Metzger to Ken Death Meiske, telling him that he was sending an envoy, Dave Mazzella, to teach Eastside white pride the ways of war and of the Aryan youth movement. This was just the coup de grace that Dees needed to bring the entire force of the SPLC down on the Metzgers. 
SPLC reached out to Mulageta's father in Ethiopia and offered to represent the family pro bono in a civil suit against the Metzgers. Mulageta's nine-year-old son, Henoch, and his grandfather came to Portland for the wrongful death trial. SPLC also contacted Portland personal injury lawyer Eldon Rosenthal to handle the local parts of the case. Rosenthal had family that was massacred in the Holocaust, and he was eager to provide his services free of charge. The case was brought to trial in 1990, and it touched off a whole new wave of protests and counter-protests across the city. In the course of the trial, thousands would march in anti-racist rallies, and the Metzgers would have to be put under 24-hour protection to ensure their safety. A gathering of over 1,500 people in the South Park Blocks area of Portland was attended by civic leaders, the community, and a 300-strong contingent of the group called Skinheads Against Racial Prejudice. In anticipation of white power counter-protests, the police would dispatch more officers than they ever had before in the city's history, except for at a 1955 concert for Elvis Presley and, weirdly enough, a 1987 Run DMC concert. While these anti-racist rallies were happening, hate crimes began to escalate in the region in retaliation for the lawsuit brought against war and the Metzgers, and at their peak, the city was averaging about two hate crimes a week. The basic premise of the case brought by the SPLC was built on a legal principle called vicarious liability, in which one party is deemed responsible for another party's actions if it can be proven that they were engaged in a collective activity. This is a principle that is used in employment law sometimes when an employer is held responsible for the action of their employees because they didn't put a stop to it. The SPLC's contention was that Dave Mazzella was sort of programmed by the Metzger's father, Tom, and son, John, to sow the seeds of violence by organizing different factions, and that he was instructed to do this specifically with Eastside White Pride. Because he was operating with the tacit approval and endorsement of the Metzger's in war, they were civilly liable for Mulugeta's death and therefore owed a civil penalty to his family. The trial was serious business, but it was not without its moments of sardonic humor. Tom Metzger decided to represent himself, and despite the old saying that a person that represents themselves has a fool for an attorney, he actually did all right. He made a pretty solid and eloquent opening statement, and this shouldn't have been too surprising. The guy was really well-spoken. The humorous part of the trial came when Tom Metzger made a pretrial motion to have the initial judge removed because his name, Donald Laundered, quote, sounded Jewish, end quote. Launder was, in fact, Jewish. So he asked Metzger and Dees if it would be acceptable for a different judge, the Honorable Answer Haggerty, to oversee the trial. Maybe Metzger thought that the name Haggerty was sufficiently Aryan. Whatever the reason, he agreed. So you can imagine his surprise when he discovered that he had just agreed to have a black judge oversee the trial. He again petitioned for this judge's removal, but this petition was unsuccessful. The star witness for the SPLC was Dave Mazzella, who would detail his training by the Metzgers, how he idolized them to the point that he viewed Tom as a father figure and had him preside over his wedding. He told of how he was constantly sending updates about his progress in Portland to the Metzgers, including detailing assaults on non-white people. These included a horrific retelling of what they referred to as black bashing incidents and the horrific assault in a park in which a group of racist skins kicked a Latinx man while forcing him to lick the sole of another skinhead's boot. 
Dave Mazzella said that at no time when he was reporting about his efforts in Portland did the Metzgers tell him to stop or discourage him from how he was training the Portland groups. Mazzella said that this wasn't surprising because Tom and John were happy to foment violence through publishing racist literature and encouraging a race war, but they were also very reluctant to get their own hands dirty. In the end, the jury held the Metzgers civilly liable for Mulageta's death and leveled a $12 million penalty against them. Tom Metzger would also lose his California home in the fallout from the trial. The home would go to Mulageta's family, and Metzger would end up living in an apartment and collecting welfare. One of the SPLC attorneys who worked on the case was James McElroy, who held Mulageta's son, Hanock, on his lap when the jury returned the verdict. McElroy would go on to adopt the then 10-year-old Henoch with his grandfather's blessing. At a memorial ceremony commemorating the 30th anniversary of Mulligata's death, McElroy would acknowledge the irony that it was through the murder of his father, a young immigrant who had come here to get an education so he could better his lot in life, that his son was able to attain the dream that Mulligata had for himself. Henoch is now an adult and a commercial airline pilot who resides outside of the United States. It should be said of this trial that it was one that Portland welcomed, in part because it would bring justice to Mulugeta's family and closure to an incredibly ugly and painful event in the city's history. Other commentators and racial justice activists have pointed out that another reason Portlanders welcomed this trial of the California-based Metzgers and white Aryan resistance is because it was easier to stomach that the cause of Mulugeta's murder came from forces outside of the city. It was more comfortable to think that but for an outside agitator, something as ugly and vicious as this hate crime would never have occurred in our progressive city. The aftermath of the civil suit would all but destroy war, though the group still maintains a website and the Metzgers still spew their racist bile on various platforms. But it was not a death knell for the white power movement in general. The early 90s saw the rise of other hate groups like Volksfront, who would become a prominent presence in the Pacific Northwest, until they were driven underground after a cross-burning incident in the Portland suburb of Gresham prompted even more scrutiny and tracking by the SPLC. The Aryan nations would also continue to grow throughout the 90s until they were taken down by a similar lawsuit after Aryan nations guards outside their Hayden Lake compound shot a car occupied by a mother and son and beat them with their rifles. The SPLC was able to secure a $6.7 million penalty against the Aryan nations, resulting in the dismantling of their North Idaho compound, effectively pushing them out of the state. But though things remained relatively quiet on the organized hate group front for a while, in recent years, the Pacific Northwest has seen a resurgence of organized hate in the form of groups like the Proud Boys and Patriot Prayer, who frequently take to the streets of Portland. Unfortunately, the wake-up call for white progressives in Portland after Mulageta's murder followed the trajectory that we have seen happen over and over again in our history. Portlanders once again allowed themselves to be lulled into a sense of complacency and began to blanket themselves in the notion that this city is one where racial harmony exists, even as radical gentrification pushed entire communities out of the Alberta and Albina neighborhoods that were once the heart of the black community even as voices of communities of color were continually left out of important decisions that impacted their livelihoods. Even as Multnomah County maintained one of the highest disproportionate rates of indigenous children in foster care in the nation. Even as, as recently as this year, 
a scandal involving two police departments in two different cities unfolded, which saw police deliberately framing a black man for a manufactured crime as a favor to a white employer after the man had filed a civil rights claim against his boss. These issues are not unique to Portland. We are all in a moment where we are watching or joining up with widespread protests, decrying how institutions rooted in white supremacy have continued to deprive people of color, and the black community specifically, of their rights, dignity, and their very lives. In 2018, on the 30th anniversary of the murder of Mulligay Tassera, the Urban League of Portland and the city unveiled new street signs at the intersection where he was killed. The signs bear his name in both English and Amharic, the predominant language of Ethiopia. His uncle, city leaders, friends, and the community showed up to commemorate the event. Many leaders and community members spoke out both about how far the city has come and how far it has not come in the period since his death. Some spoke of the hope that they had in seeing so many young people show up to commemorate an event that happened well before they were even born. In Kenge Harmon Johnson, the president and CEO of the Urban League, reminded those in attendance that the threat of violent racism continues in Portland. She said, quote, our eyes are wide open. We know that the Patriot Prayer Boys and the Proud Boys and the white nationalists and those other hoodlums who seek to make us unsafe, who want to bring us back to 30 years ago when Mulugeta was beaten on these streets by those thugs. We know there are folks who want to bring us back to that, end quote. She pointed to the strong showing of the community at the memorial as something that should give us all hope. In 2019, Fear No Music, a Portland collective, performed the composition commissioned by Kenji Bunch called The F Word, which honored the memory and legacy of Mulugeta, and which included an exhibit by The Forgiveness Project, which promotes healing and reconciliations. The legacy of Mulugeta Serra is one of awakening and reckoning of acknowledging the harmful past and present of our city, no matter how much it may be at odds with the picture that we have of ourselves. It is a legacy that compels us to do better by our communities of color and to do better as human beings. Tonight, as I record this, Portland and cities and towns across the country will enter the 27th consecutive night of protests following George Floyd's being suffocated under the knee of a white police officer. These are protests against racial injustice, against police brutality, and systemic racism. For all of those, named and unnamed, the Breonna Taylors, the Sandra Blands, the George Floyds, the Tete Goles, the Mulligay Tesseras, for the victims of racism whose names we know, whose names we don't, for those who are no longer with us, and those who live every single day feeling the knee of oppression on their neck or kicking the life out of them, let us hope that the current wake-up call that we are all experiencing compels meaningful and tangible change. Thank you for listening to this episode of Darklands. Darklands is a free-to-pants production. All sources are on our website, which can be found in the show notes. Please send feedback, ideas, comments to darklandspodcast at gmail.com. Until next week, be well.